0: Three generations of rabbis uh, conversation that um, we started last year, and it is backed by popular demand. So um, we are here to discuss uh, a topic that we came up with since they said, we just want you to do this again. We don't know exactly what we want you to talk about. So we came up with our own um, idea for tonight's topic, Uh, being reconstructionists. We are all reconstructionists. Reconstructionist rabbis trained at the Reconstructional, Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, except for our reform trainee uh, over there. I was practicing. Um, but who, <laughs> right? a who a has served Reconstructionist Judaism um, extraordinarily well and communicates its message and has uh, for a very long time uh, and has touched so many people with that message. Um, so we decided we would go back to our fundamental reconstructionist starting place of walking into civilizations. And uh that means of course that we live fully in the Jewish civilization and in the American civilization we have a Jewish identity and an American identity and that they are not in any way exclusive. There may be elements of those identities that clash. Uh but they are they're complete it's like saying am I more female or more brunette. Right? They, for, for Mordecai Kaplan and for Reconstructionists, there's, there's no, theres no, are you a Jewish American or an American Jew? It's a silly question in Reconstructionist parlance. We're both. We're always both. One might rise to the top, but my mother identity might rise to the top as well. So, but, so we decided um, we're going to see if this works to break it into two sessions. We thought we'd start with Jewish identity tonight. Uh, and then next time we do this, we're on the books to do another one, we would do American identity. And so uh, it may all bleed together, and at the end of this, we're going to have to find another topic to talk about for next time. That will be partly up to you uh, to decide by the questions you ask us. Uh, tonight, however, we are very fortunate, because it's not just us three, your KI, three generations of rabbis. Uh, but we have the great good fortune to have with us tonight uh, President Deborah Waxman. She's president of the... Uh, Reconstructionist communities you know we've gone through some name changes uh, Jewish Reconstructionist Federation uh, we've uh, become Jewish Reconstructionist communities uh, and uh, President Waxman uh, is the expert on these issues not because of her position as president although that makes her of course the one who's dealing with the stuff on the ground the most every single day uh, but she actually uh, is the Kaplan historian that a lot of us uh, go to she, she and Mel Skult are the people who really have studied Kaplan. She has her PhD uh, in history and, uh, and has done Kaplan as her work. So, if you really want to know, she's the one of the four of us to ask.
1: Um, so, Does that mean we don't have to say anything. To that, me? mean, that means, to Rabbi means we have night? to say less. That would be perfect. <laughs> we have to say less. Beautiful.
0: So, we thought the format might go as follows: uh, that. Um, Rabbi Waxman would President Rabbi hi, what's the ordering there? I know it's Rabbi, like always doctor, like Dr. Huh? Rabbi Rabbi Dr. Rabbi President Waxman will, um, will kind of open for uh, about 10 minutes and then um, each one of us and we're going to go generationally um, will talk for about 10 minutes about how we understand well actually I shouldn't talk for what they're going to talk about um, I, I thought about talking about um, the, the generational influences um, on my Jewish identity Uh, And then we're going to open it up to you and Millie Wexler, who so capably and ably uh, um, does so much programming for us uh, as adult learners. Uh, She will moderate the conversation that you all get to be in charge of. And Erin, we want to thank Erin for being here, and Justin, as always, for making us sound good and hopefully on the web look good. Uh, And with that, I will turn it over to President Waxman.
2: Hi, it's such a great honor to be here with my beloved colleagues and with all of you. I have the great honor to lead the Reconstructionist movement, and we are a relatively young movement, and we're still somewhat associated with our founding thinker, Mordecai Kaplan. Kaplan lived in the, he was, he's, he's the quintessential, um, one quintessential American story. He was born in Europe in the 1880s. He came over himself as an immigrant, but he was very young, so he was very Americanized. He went to public schools and and, and all the time having a very intensive Jewish education. And it was his his desire to Americanize the, the, the children of the Jewish immigrants who were coming over. So... He was writing significantly for the, 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 he was writing and thinking significantly for the people who came of age in the 30s, in the 40s, and the 50s. Now this is, this is within the living memory of some of the people still in our community. And Kaplan himself lived a very long life. He lived to the age of 102 and, or 101 and died in 1982 or 81. People met him especially out here in California, where he spent a lot of time. One of the challenges of being both an historian of the Reconstructionist movement and the leader of the Reconstructionist movement and and thinking about it generationally is it means that there are people who will say, um, no, no, that's not how it was. It's, you know, the people who are deeply, deeply attached to different interpretations of Reconstructionism. Now, that's, it's very interesting because the very word Reconstructionism is about reconstructing Judaism. You know, we should understand it maybe more as a, as a verb than as a noun that, that we, that we, that we, Inherit this rich and diverse tradition set of traditions that, they, that, that that have deep meaning for us and that we take hold of them, and that we are also empowered obligated even to reconstruct them so that, they, that so that our Judaism is relevant to the to the current moment and pertinent to the future that we want to be building so that tension to toward a little bit of Maybe even fundamentalism is a little bit at odds with, um, with, with a reconstructionist approach. I'll tell you a, a story to illustrate this. One strand of my research was about the move toward egalitarianism within Reconstructionist Judaism. We are well known as the, um, the group that the, for the people who brought the Bat Mitzvah to American life. In fact, that was the tagline of a, a, a video that we did a couple of years ago. Kaplan, very deeply influenced by the American environment, um, had four daughters. He saw in the, in, the, in, the, in the teens and the 20s the move toward um, women's rights, the, toward women's suffrage, and he wanted an equivalent ceremony for his, his daughters, and so it was his eldest daughter Judith Kaplan, later Judith Kaplan Eisenstein, who stepped forward to become the first bat mitzvah. We, when we think about this event, we often think that that her bat mitzvah looked like the way a girl's bat mitzvah here might look, when in fact, it was an evolution. Kaplan, first of all, it was right after the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, the first Reconstruction Synagogue was established, and when it was first formed, they still had separate seating with a mechitza, so she sat with her mother on the other side. when When the Torah was taken out, it was her father who took the aliyah not her, and she stood in the front of the room and chanted from a chumash, um, not from the Torah itself. She was a brilliant musician. She went on to become a musicologist and also very Jewishly educated, so her father didn't even decide what she should chant until the night before because there was no precedent. Um, So it, 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 it took many years until it became... Uh, The story at the SAJ is that she and she and her three sisters had this bat mitzvah um, and then um, and then uh, a handful of other girls did but most of the girls at the SAJ did not. Now, how do I know this? As an historian, I went through and I read all of the bulletins. So I have the dates of who had it and who didn't. Um, and, the, and I tell the story and I would share text to show that it wasn't necessarily a straightforward path. And in fact, at some point in time during the Depression, the SAJ was talking about re-merging with the Orthodox synagogue that they had broken away from. And someone said to Kaplan, well, what about the status of women? Because they got rid of the mechitzah very quickly. And he said, well, that's negotiable. Um, which is quite shocking for people to hear. So I am at the, the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, which is still it's a wonderful and vibrant synagogue on the Upper West Side, and I'm presenting my research. And my point is mostly to say that when, when, we, we look at, when we look backward, history frequently looks like a straight line, but in fact, it's often much more jagged. This is something I've been repeating to myself a lot these last weeks after, since the election. Um, so that it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a pulsation. It goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I'm standing there, I'm presenting my sources, I'm making my argument, and a, there are a lot of... Um, Fierce Elders in Reconstructionism. It's one of, the, one of the great blessings of this movement. And a woman stands up, interrupts me, um, and says very, very fiercely, that's not how it was. I was there, and that's not how it was. And it was, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, I had the... I had the Documents that demonstrate one thing and she had the lived experience of herself as a reconstructionism that in her memory every single girl had a bat mitzvah and she had one and everyone so this is um, this is the nature of oral history this is the nature of um, this is the nature of doing historical work with it when, when there are people alive who can contest um and this is the great richness of the Reconstructionist movement, that we are actively building it up, that we're, um, that we're continually refining it, that what we're doing, what we did yesterday is there, there'll be continuities, but we don't presume that it's necessarily the right thing to do for tomorrow, and that we understand that we... We can, with study, with reflection, through community conversation, we can introduce changes that we think will allow us to be the fullest expressions of ourselves as human beings, as Jews, as Americans and as citizens of the planet, um, and, and, that's why, and and that's why we are Jewish for, the, for, that, for both the particular and those universal ends so I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to learn from my colleagues. And listen in their stories, because those generations, you will see deep continuities... Um, I th- I'm anticipating in um, the in the in the in the Jewish commitments, in the curiosity, in the openness in the commitment to growth. And with the commitment to growth means an understanding that it's it's there's change that's embedded within. So I, I think that you will hear w- along with me, we will we will see continuities and we will also see um, we'll hear different notes um, that come to the forefront or that. Resound more loudly for each. And some of that for sure is personality, and some of it is generational. And all of it, I think, is, um, is, is vitalizing. All of it is about um, about a real commitment, to an understanding that we live both in, in vertical community, that we We care deeply about what our ancestors did and and the traditions that they passed down to us, and we are deeply invested in the future of, of our children. Um, and, and, and the next generations, and that we also live in horizontal community. In, I, mean, so I love to be here in this amphitheater, that, that, that the conversation that we are having with each other is, is vitally important. So, and that's, that is to me why I, uh, you know, I'm I, I constantly engaged by the questions that people who are associated with the Reconstructionist movement ask. So I'm, again, I'm so happy to be with you tonight, and I'm so excited to hear from my, my colleagues.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for that, uh, that introduction for all of us. Um, this is a, tonight a about identity, Jewish identity, American Jewish identity, where those come from and how we relate to them from our uh, different life experiences. Um, it's been an interesting uh, several weeks. So I just thought I would share one quote from Mordecai Kaplan that I found particularly striking in the last couple of weeks. He once wrote, beware of people who combine massive intellectual ignorance with brilliant powers of salesmanship. (laughs) Just saying. Okay, so... (laughs) Take it wherever you want. Um, When you walk into this building and you walk through the the lobby, if you ever look up on the wall above (coughs) one of the walls where we have lists of names of people who have generously donated for one of our campaigns or another, we have a quote from Mordecai Kaplan that says, life becomes infinitely more meaningful and worthwhile when lived in community. Because ultimately, that's what it's all about for us. It's about living in community, and that's where we draw our identities from. And and in this case, talking about living in in two civilizations at the same time, that that sense of living with one foot in the Jewish civilization and the other foot in the American civilization, and whether we lean toward one or whether we lean to the other at different times in our lives, there are lots of factors that determine that. Now, I. I was born in 1949 and, you know, grew up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but my, my childhood obviously was in that period of American history. Grew up in Santa Monica, a very non-Jewish community in Santa Monica. Uh, I um, quit the Boy Scouts because it was too anti-Semitic for me because I kept being taunted for being Jewish. Uh, when I was a kid, I'm sure that wouldn't happen today, but it happened to me in, in my life. Here, only down ten minutes away from here, in Santa Monica, I grew up in a in a family that belonged to a Reform synagogue uh, that was very synagogue involved. So my, my Jewish identity grew out of the fact that um, I lived a Jewish life, a typical Reform Jewish life of the 1950s and uh, and early 60s. You know, we the rule in our family was whatever else you did during the in the week, six o'clock Friday night, you were at home sitting at the dinner table for Shabbat, you know. And then when dinner was over, you'd go out to whatever you were doing. But everybody was there. I have three sisters. We were all there, and everybody had their roles. And one of us did this blessing, and one of us did that blessing, and one of us did that blessing. And it was that training of this is what you do. This is what Judaism meant belonging to a synagogue, being involved in synagogue life, and then the natural sort of outgrowth of that, being involved in Jewish youth groups and going to a Jewish camp, which is so crucial that we're building a Reconstructionist camp on the West Coast, to which you can all support eventually. So, because, you know, camp is, without question, one of the greatest formations of Jewish identity that we have. When I think of my childhood Jewish experiences... I hated religious school. Every year I would have an argument with my parents about whether I had to go or whether I didn't have to go because I never wanted to go. And my mother would always say to me, thank you for sharing. No problem. You can quit right after confirmation. You know. And every year she'd say the same thing. I totally understand. Thank you for sharing. And you can quit right after confirmation. So I showed her and became a rabbi. But... Um, <laughs> However, my Jewish camp experience was—I went to here up at Hess Kramer when I started, and then I have went to Camp Swig, and I was very involved in sort of the Reform Movement camps. And if you look at every rabbinical school in America, you will see the vast majority of students who end up going to rabbinical school went through some camp somewhere. You know, it was such a life-transforming, life-affirming, and Jewishly-affirming experience for them. This slice of vibrant living Judaism in a modern world, in a modern context. So I would say without question, those were the best Jewish experiences I had growing up. I had some that were grounding Jewish, like Friday night at 6 o'clock. It was a grounding Jewish experience. And it was a given. It wasn't like I would have a discussion about should I be Jewish or not. That's not a part of your... You know, my, my consciousness, it was just who I was, just like who I was was an American growing up here and being born here. Um, so as a child, I certainly never felt a conflict between American and Jewish, except I felt like a minority. When, unlike today, I'm sure, I was the little drummer boy in the Christmas play because I played drums when I was, you know, nine years old and when I was 10 years old and going to Franklin Elementary School and very conscious that every this season, every year was the Christmas season. And that was the only sort of annual conflict of identity, the clash of identity that I used to have. I used to argue with my parents that we should hang stockings up, not because obviously I had anything to do with anything religiously Christian, but isn't that what you do? You hang stockings up? My mother always said, thank you for sharing, but that was, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But, you know, it was a traumatic month every year for me. And I suspect for people of a certain age, it was a a traumatic month. It was the one time of the year where I, I couldn't avoid the conflict of am I a real American person, because everybody here is, seems to be Christian but me. Everybody here is celebrating Christmas as if but me. So I grew up in a synagogue where we had an annual Hanukkah decoration contest so that everybody would try to decorate their houses for Hanukkah and put lights and do all kinds of things and give prizes at, at uh, every year because it was a, a, trying to be a counterweight to the obvious that was all around uh, I think that there are certain generational things that will emerge because I'm going to start talk stop talking in a minute. But, you know, the difference between growing up in the 1950s and, and early 60s and going through that and growing up 20 years later or 30 years later um, is dramatic just because of the culture of America, that as American culture shifts, so to our our sense of self in relationship to Others shifts. I think it's one of the traumas of this, for some of us, this post-election time. Frankly, is the questioning about is identity suddenly once again under attack? Will it be? It's not. Will it be under attack? You know, the head of the white supremacist was making a college tour this this uh, this month, trying to because he felt he said out loud, our time has come. It's a good time to recruit young people to uh, white supremacy. Uh, And and there are certainly in in the minority communities, including the Jewish community, that suddenly people start talking, are we once again a minority community in a different way than we might have been before, uh, just because of the tenor of conversations that have been going on, not because of anything that's specifically happened in that sense. So it seems to me that what we're wrestling with and what we're going to talk about tonight in many ways is our our own personal stories. As we're talking, I want you to think about also, you know, your personal stories about uh, how did your Jewish identity get formed and in what ways did you feel conflicts or, you know, consonance with your your American identity? Um, Certainly it's different for those who grow up here. Some of you are immigrants because I can look around and see. Some of you came here from other countries. To America and it's got to be a whole different experience for one who comes from another country and adopts America as their their uh, national identity uh, from those of us who were who were born so I'm going to just throw that out and stop that's all because
0: because I can stop good to know you can stop right so it's stop um, so when I think about the factors that influenced my Jewish identity, if I think about it generationally, like what was happening for my generation, I was born in 65. Um, and so I, I think some of the factors that really impacted me, part of it is because I went to a Jewish day school. So I was around a lot of Jewish conversation a lot of the time. Um, I think right around when I was born is when the Shoah, when the Holocaust really started to be talked about, um, as a subject to study, right? It took 20 years from what I, when I've talked to experts. It took about 20 years for the realities, the facts, the analyses of those facts, the trauma, the you know, and dealing with all of that to set in, and for people to really be able to start talking about the Holocaust as a formative, you know, event um, in people's lifetimes, and so I was at the very front of Holocaust education as a subject, right, as a victim, because they didn't know how to do it yet. So although, like, it was just starting to be talked about, and it's really important to teach our children this, it hadn't been going on long enough, and the conversation hadn't been going on long enough, the trauma was still too new, and they were just starting to talk about it really out loud to children, Um, nobody talked about how to do that. So I remember on a Holocaust day, Yom HaShoah, at the Hebrew Academy, the 7th graders uh, were always the ones serving lunch to the younger kids. We ate family style, uh, and the 7th graders had the privilege and the responsibility of serving the younger kids. And on Yom HaShoah, there were huge photographs lining the hallways of our school, pictures of dead bodies, piles of dead bodies. Um... Piles of mass burials with people having been shot into them and a row of people getting ready to be shot naked into pits. Um, we were shown films, um, of actual Nazi footage. And we were told as seventh graders that we could serve the little ones stale, br- a piece of stale bread they didn't get anymore. They got a little bit of water with like potato, you know, peelings or whatever in it, um, and a little cup of water. And if they raised their hand and said, I'm hungry, and they wanted more, we were to tell them, it's Yom HaShoah, this is what happened to our people, you can't have any more food. This was education, right, for us as Jewish children. So I think a large part of what I grew up in is we were still marinating in the pain of the Holocaust, and no one knew what to do with that. But what it meant was you'd better be Jewish, and you'd better stay Jewish and we are right always under attack and you better be ready for an attack it could happen here you never know right then the other half was saying it could never happen here you know as people wanted to feel safe and um, that something had changed fundamentally here uh in america so um so that was a huge part i think of my generation's um, experience uh, of what jewish identity meant uh, then th- th- at the same crazy time right right shortly after Israel is formed as a state so we got raised with this crazy dichotomy um, of the most horrible thing that had happened in recent Jewish experience or memory Um, and then the most miraculous thing that had happened to the Jewish people in 2000 years which was the founding uh, of the state of Israel and Jewish sovereignty uh, in the land of Israel for the the first time in in two millennia. So we got raised with this really um, schizophrenic, where everybody's victim. We went like lambs to the slaughter, uh, right? And they came and we never heard about the six million others, by the way, right? It was six million Jews. You rarely heard about, you know, political dissidents. You, you didn't hear that. You heard six million Jews. Um, and yet we had beat up all these other armies and we, we now had taken the land of Israel and we were like, you know, um, strong and never again, you know, was the motto. And so it was this very interesting mix of both pride and Jewish strength and like lambs, we were led to the slaughter. Um, the other thing um, I think was a big factor was a feeling of real connection to Jews all around the world. So, you know, I grew up saying, what's so special about Russian jewelry? Like, why is Soviet jewelry so special? Right? It's like, so finally, like, like I, I was educated to understand that it was, you know, that we are Jews. It is Soviet Jewry, And you are connected to Jews all over the world because they are your people. And you should care about them no matter where they are. And we had bumper stickers on our cars, Israel Must Live, and, you know, free Soviet Jewry. Um, and I remember very um, clearly selling bumper stickers uh, for Refuseniks, you know, uh, in the mall in Atlanta, Georgia, when I was maybe eight. So it's the early 70s, um, and uh, my parents were selling them on behalf of, I don't know, Federation or whatever, uh, and we, we were getting absolutely no business, N- none whatsoever, people just walking by and like, who are these people, whatever. And then my father, of blessed memory, um, had this brilliant idea, he saw a shop across the way, and he, he says... I'll be right back. He hands us his bumper stickers, and he runs across the mall, and then he comes back a few minutes later, and he's got huge wooden crosses for us. And he said, put these on. Put these on. And I'm like, what are you talking I was so confused. So we put on these wooden crosses. He said, now get out there and start selling. And I was just like, Look, what is going to change from five minutes ago? So I go out again going, and they went like hotcakes. <laughs> the bumper stickers went like hotcakes. So there was this, you know, like, Israel, like, connection, and, you know, and we felt, you know, that uh, for Soviet jury and whatever, but if we were doing it as Jews, it wasn't going to fly with the public, but if we did it as Christians concerned about Jews, then it flew. Right? And, and whence. So, um, so a real connection to doing whatever one had to do to motivate uh, on behalf of Jews all over the world was a really strong sense of um, what I was, um, I think, exposed to. It was really inculcated uh, in us. Um, I also went to Jewish camps. Um, It was where probably my best memories of Jewish identity were formed. Uh, So I'm super excited about what we are now uh, moving into with Camp JRF West. Um, I think that um, there was, unlike Rabbi Rubin's generation, there was a sense that overt anti-Semitism, and certainly the older I got, overt anti-Semitism became less and less acceptable in my lifetime, right, until, (laughs) like, Until how many, how many days ago? Um, overt anti Semitism was really, has, has over my lifetime and my generation has been, as I've experienced it, in the decline in terms of what's acceptable publicly, right, to say. Uh, out loud. Um, I, I never was really exposed to anti-Semitism very much as a child. That people think living in the deep South, that, you know, uh, in the Bible Belt, that you know everybody's got to be anti-Semites there, and they think you have horns and all that stuff. And um, some of them do. I won't lie to you. Um, but in general, it, it was not acceptable. Um, it was not polite. It was not right. Um, and it got less and less so as, um, as I got older. Um, so what I grew up with, I believe, is what um, Rabbi David Hartman, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, um, Rabbi uh, Hartman talked to us about when he was here for lunch, Danielle Hartman talked about um, what he understands as the covenant of being versus the covenant of doing. And that is a change I've seen in my lifetime. I'm anxious for Rabbi Renner to talk about how that shows up in his generation and in his experience. And here's the thing. Here's what that means. That I grew up, and I think Rabbi Rubin did as well, as a Jew, because that's just who you are. You are a Jew. Like, there's nothing you, you do about that. You are a Jew. Whether you light Shabbos candles or not, you're a Jew. And the way you walk through the world is as a Jew. And I danced ballet. And I danced with the Atlanta Ballet uh, till the age of 14, when I was aerodynamically no longer correct for the ballet. Um, and so I danced um, in the, uh, with the Atlanta Ballet and did the Nutcracker every single year. And so, like him, my art was every single year a source of mixed pride that I was on the Fox Theater stage with the Atlanta Ballet uh, and deep conflict about what it meant that there was, you know, a Christmas tree, like, you know, Bigger, taller than this room, you know, because it grows in her dream, right? It literally was to the top of the ceiling. And what that meant to be part of a Christmas story that took up my whole winter vacation every year was a deep source of conflict for me. And was the time I felt um, that, you know, here I am a Jew now on this stage when I had just been a, a dancer before. But for two weeks, you know, all through rehearsal, however many months that took, you're a Jew doing this show. Um, so, so for, for Hartman, what he's talking about is the covenant of being. That's how we were Jews until recently. Is is just who you were, and whether you did certain behaviors or didn't do certain behaviors, it didn't affect your existential reality that you are a Jew. Now we are seeing, and I've seen this in my lifetime. I've seen it certainly in my rabbinate. Now. There is a shift to a covenant of doing. So it's about people wanting the synagogue. To, in my generation, the synagogue was there because the people before us built it for us. And now it's your obligation as the working people to provide it for the next generation. Now, its I don't use the synagogue very much. Why should I pay? As much as people with children. Wh- I don't use it. So, you know what? I don't, why should I even belong? I'm going to just buy high holiday tickets. Why do I need to belong or support a synagogue that I don't use? Right? So now it's fees for services. It's about if I don't do it, what do I, I'm not going to pay for it. Um, and it's become about, does doing Jewish, does Jewish right now have for me something about what I want to see happen in the world? So you hear tikkun olam being the big buzzword, right? Because it's like, there better be something I want to do as part of this or i'm not sure what jewish means to me right it's not the covenant of being like i just am it it's now do i want to do it is it offering me something that i am about that's meaningful to me that is expressive of who i am as spiritually or my values my whatever and if not i'm not so sure how i feel and not even feel i, I don't know that i'm so jewish right Um, And so that is a seriously huge change and a change that we as a synagogue community, people who do care about this institution and about the Jewish people, are going to have to take really seriously and figure out exactly what it means and address um, the challenges of that shift from the covenant of being to the covenant of doing.
3: So I appreciate getting to stand in this place with... Rabbi Dr. Waxman, as well as Rabbis Bernstein and Rubin, in reflecting on all of this and where it is we come from and how all of these journeys that we've had have changed over time. Uh, If I think about my own story, I think that actually the image that comes to mind is that of the Sukkah Sukkot. It's the Sukkah outside. The question with it is are you inside or are you outside? And when are you inside? When are you outside? The thing is kind of partially covered, but there's light coming through. You can't completely enclose it. You can't air condition it. It's got to be outdoors, but you're kind of inside it, but you're outside at the same time. Um, That's sort of been the story of at least a lot of my life and a lot of my journey in terms of figuring out, well, when am I Jewish? How am I Jewish? Am I in? Am I out? And I think the ways in which I have asked those questions and been party to those questions as part of my story reflects... This question right now of who is a Jew and what boundaries do we have around being Jewish. So my upbringing is, it reflects a lot of demographic pieces. It reflects a lot of this sort of uh, post-generation X, beginning of the uh, millennial generation trend, um, particularly with intermarriage. I am the child. I am the son of an intermarriage. My Christian uh, father's family is Presbyterian and Methodist my mother's family is reformed Jewish and I think that my grandparents they were very interested if we're thinking about living in two civilizations and what that means to live in both of these spaces at the same time as a zero sum thing my Jewish grandparents were very interested in how can we be the most American we can be how do we fit into all of these things the Jewish thing was kind of inconvenient for them in many ways I know that my grandfather never had a bar mitzvah he never wanted one but he always told me Don't forget that you're Jewish because they won't let you forget that you're Jewish. Now, this is really a different world than the world I grew up in. Um, I grew up as the child of this intermarriage. Um, My dad left when I was young. He wasn't really part of the story of raising me, and so I sort of saw myself as more Jewish as a reflection of the family I was around. But that was still a very complicated question for the Jewish institutions around so, my mom was reformed. She thought, okay, we'll take you to a Reform synagogue, You'll be, uh, you can be in Hebrew school there. Their custodial agreement with me was that I was with my dad every other weekend, so two days out of 14. The Reform rabbi heard this and said, this is in the late 80s, uh, we can't be assured that he's actually growing up Jewish or in a Jewish environment, he can't be part of this community. Because this was the question, this was the late 80s, and this was this moment of policing boundaries, trying to figure out who was in and who was out and intermarriage was an incredibly scary thing to so many institutions and Jewish communal figures and voices. So this is how this uh, came to be, that uh, I didn't grow up reform. My mom, somebody told her you should go see the conservative synagogue. She said, God, they're going to be even more traditional and more strict and more machmir than the reform was. Um, That rabbi Happened to have a different perspective on it. Uh, I grew up with uh, my teacher, Rabbi Steve Sager. He looked at the whole thing and for him it was very easy because he actually fell back on halakha. He fell back on Jewish law. He said, "Oh, well, you know, if your mother's Jewish, we'll say that halakha, are Jewish, that's an easy thing. Although his deferring to halakha in this space, I think, reflected a very different institutional perspective. It reflected a very different perspective on who was going to be in and who was going to be out and how the institution was going to draw those lines. Um, So I grew up conservative, just by the roll of the dice in that way. Now, I thought I was uh, the only person who had a parent who wasn't Jewish. I thought it was some secret that I had to keep, Um, and it was something that felt uncomfortable to me. And I felt like I was always a little bit less than or not quite Jewish with the same pedigree. Uh, By fifth, sixth grade, I realized that there were three or four of my classmates in religious school who also had parents that weren't Jewish. Um, One of them had a mother who wasn't Jewish. So here my rabbi was willing to go the other way against the halakha, against the Jewish law, in fact, and let the institution quietly take a stand toward a different kind of Jewish family, toward a different view of who is in and who is out, in that sense. Um, Like Rabbi Rubin, uh, I hated Hebrew school. I hated every minute of it. Um, (laughs) When I was in sixth grade, my buddy Josh Herman and I escaped out the window. We didn't, we didn't get far. We got as far as the parking lot, but I, I share your antipathy toward pieces of your own religious education. He did it. He was more effective than Josh Herman and I were. Call like a vote, Good for you. Um, but the other thing, and this is this question of who is in and who is out that reflects uh, like again, geography, I'm not the typical Jewish story in the sense that I grew up in North Carolina, between Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, however, Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina are academic communities, very much rooted in the life of these universities. And so I went to a Quaker school out in the woods that was a third Jewish even though that in no way reflects the Jewish demographic uh, in North Carolina, because these were all the kids of the professors, the academics, the uh, medical people in particular, and around the medical centers there. So in the middle of this place, North Carolina, um, and I could tell you stories in our uh, cross-country meets growing up when we would run with these other schools, some of them were these Christian schools that had been created to get around integration back in the 60s. Um, so we were running with these students who asked about, you know, a friend of mine, we were running once and somebody asked him, what's your favorite Christian radio station? He said, well I'm, well, I'm Jewish. And she said, I thought that the Jews had horns. She really thought this. So we were in the middle of this school that was a third Jewish. It felt like a huge, significant minority, while we were a really tiny minority in the rest of the broader uh, landscape of North Carolina. So the question of being in and out in this sense Uh, was a really interesting one. We got the sense that, oh, these academic communities were all totally Jewish, and yet uh, it it did not reflect the rest of North Carolina. Um, So that was an interesting thing. The way in which I think all of this plays out here, the way that I see young people, I mean, this is a congregation in which intermarriage is not a controversial thing. We're not throwing people out the door for having Uh, multi-faith and interfaith families and this is where we get back to two civilizations this idea that living in the West and living in Jewish civilization that this is not a zero-sum equation that these things actually can reinforce one another and feed one another, that there is a greater vibrancy to what it means to live in California in the West as a Jewish person and what it means to live within Judaism as we are influenced by the ideas and the practices, the customs and the values of the West, that these things uh, uplift one another rather than being two elements that tear one another down. I would suggest that that's a really integral piece of what it means to be Jewish here, and I see it with our Bar and Bat Mitzvah students. Some of them wouldn't even necessarily say that their core identity first and foremost is that they are Jewish before all else. They have multifaceted identities in which who they are in different spaces comes in and out and moves around all these different components of who they are. Um, Amy talked about being a mom and being Jewish, that these aren't things that clash with one another. The fact that I am Southern and I think of that as an integral piece of my own identity in some ways it doesn't necessarily counteract or replace my Judaism. And my Judaism doesn't displace that, that these are both things that are real and are part of my own makeup that make me who I am. So we have a Jewish uh, professor, public intellectual, Shaul Magid, who talks about, well, what does Judaism look like now? What's it going to look like going forward? I mean, if you look at Jewish history, you look at what was 200 years ago, 500 years ago, uh, those Jews would not recognize what we have today. And so in many ways, I think it makes sense to say, okay, if we're going to look at Judaism 200 years from now, 500 years from now, it's going to look incredibly different. And Reconstructionist our, uh, our ideals and our values from that would tell us that that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That is, that is about the vibrancy of who we are. So Shaul Magid talks about a post-ethnic Judaism. This goes back to uh, Rabbi Dr. Hartman's ideas about uh, this covenant of being versus of doing. Shaul Magid says that uh, what if Judaism wasn't purely a function of who you were born and what your uh, ethnic makeup was, but about who you make community with, the actions you take, how it is you live in this world, that it's a function of uh, your journey rather than purely your genetics in this sense. Um, It's an interesting thing. And as we hold the reality of what seems to be a multi-ethnic moment, uh, for a lot of Jewish families at least, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, who are our fellow travelers? Who makes up our community? The fact that all of these things are going to be different, um, to me, is an exciting thing. I don't find myself threatened by it as much as I find myself invigorated by it. But this question that I think was formative for me in growing up, that I wrestled with and I struggled with, am I in or am I out? That question that was a function of the bigger Jewish community, who is a Jew? Who is in and who is out? That's still on the table. I don't think that has necessarily changed. And I can see where different Jews of different traditions and different perspectives are going to have different answers to that question. uh, Figuring out how it is that we can hold integrity around our own Jewish identities and the journeys of those in our communities who are part of two civilizations and, while, and how we can also, with integrity, stand as part of Kal Yisrael, there's, there's a tension there with some of our more traditional uh, co-religionists. And I think Dr. Waxman is not incorrect to say that um, the Reconstructionist ideal takes us away from a certain kind of fundamentalism. But holding that tension in and around questions of who is a Jew, who's in and who's out, I think that's going to guide the conversation and be the story of a lot of what we're talking about and thinking about and how it is that we construct and constitute community together, intertwining our journeys for the years to come. So I just wanted to give you a snapshot of how that question, who is a Jew, uh, was really formative in my journey, um, coming, being born in 1985. So that's this piece of it.
1: You know, I just want to say something about uh, that. I was thinking about when Robert Renner was speaking about uh, a meeting I had today uh, with a couple, um, sh- uh, husband and wife. She's pregnant, going to give birth in January. And the meeting was about uh, the baby naming um, of the baby boy that they're uh, expecting. And um, it's an interfaith couple. He was raised. He kept saying, well, sort of generically Christian, uh, you know, we didn't belong to anything in particular, but I think my father studying at a Presbyterian church and my mother used to go to, I don't know, whatever the Methodist church was or something. Um, And the conversation at the meeting was, could they have a baby naming and a baptism at the same time for the baby? Um, So that would reflect both of their cultures and traditions. And, of course, since they were talking to me, the answer was yes, but... um, (laughs) But the point was, <clears throat> not that I said yes, but that, um, well, in part it's that I said yes, because in part that's how this congregation grew, was a lot of yes to affirming interfaith relationships in, in the most non-judgmental way that we could be. <clears throat> um, but it's such a reflection of, you know, a, a generation that um, whose self-definition is, so different than than I mean, it wasn't. They saw no conflict at all in the question. It was just you know, would I? How could we make it happen? It was you know, did I know a, a minister who would come? Because they didn't really know any ministers who would come because he was not from here. And and the sense of the personalness. The individuation of identity that for her, she was perfectly secure in saying, well, I want to name, I can come up with the Hebrew name. And whatever else we do, you know, baptism or anything else, any other ritual, is just another piece of what this child's identity is going to be like. And it was, you know, such a different experience than when I was growing up in terms of how we see the power of these rituals to affirm or to be who's in and who's out the who's in and who's out is almost like not even a question in many ways. There, you know, it's because it's going to be floating in and floating out.
0: Some of us are not ready to go there. Oh, well, that, for that, sure. that the complete fluidity of identity is to especially a minority incredibly threatening. Um, and while there are certainly parts of our identities that rise to the fore sometimes and recede at other times um, as as a movement we don't co-officiate. It's one of the few places the movement has taken a stand to say this is where we draw the line is that we do not do those kinds of um, ceremonies together Um, and I'm very aware that we are living at the fault line of, of that set of issues about identity uh, and how fluid they are and how you know how much it is a covenant of being and doing and i know we are at the fault line i have no idea i'm a true reconstructionist i have no idea where it's going Uh, but i know i have concerns on both ends both the exclusivity of you're not in because you don't you know have that um, set of criteria whatever they are to be a jew who could say i'm a jew by the covenant of being but I really worry about what it means to be going all the way to the other side to say it is only about I'm a Jew of doing and that means I can be in church today and, you know, identifying Christian today and Jewish tomorrow and, um, and what that means for Jewish identities. And don't know where what it means or where it's going, but
3: so I'm I, living the tension. I, uh, I also would not perform this ceremony as the child of an intermarriage intentionally because for me a great deal of what it meant to constitute my own identity was to have a sense of these things being distinct Mm -hmm. and being separate and that not being a pejorative thing or a value judgment necessarily. Um, I might be at my dad's family when they celebrate Christmas and relating, you know, or sharing their presents and whatever, if it's during Hanukkah, I will find a separate time to light the menorah and some of them, a couple of my cousins, will come and take part in that with me. Um, to me, having integrity and dignity around these differences is to hold them as differences, is to hold them as distinct traditions, distinct uh, cultural expressions. And that to me is how I've found my own way to navigate those differences in those different places is to hold them as being different. Not that either one is better or worse than the other, but to hold them as being different and to honor that difference, in fact. Um, The fact that my dad's family can honor that difference, for me, I think is a testament to the ways in which they have grown over time. Um, But we're willing to meet each other that way and we're willing to be family in that way even as we hold having distinct traditions. And so I think from that place of... Uh, difference with dignity, with integrity, and with love—that's um, the place from which I don't think I would officiate that ceremony. So
2: I want to reflect just briefly about the, the trajectory that really was, um, you know, powerfully demonstrated. One of the reasons that I um, uh, I, I did a doctorate in, in history and in American Jewish history with a serious emphasis on, on American history was to try to, it was, it was with an eye toward the future, but trying to understand where we came from and how we're shaped. And so much of, um, you, you know, one of the things when we look about uh, evolution within from a Reconstructionist perspective, we're looking at um, changes in the broader environment that had an impact with, uh, on Jewish life and, and on the Jewish people and also internal changes within the Jewish community um, that that introduced changes that, that for, sometimes forced changes and you saw in the narratives both of those that you know, uh, Rabbi Rubin was talking about um, it was no question at all of belonging to a synagogue and you think about uh, American life uh, uh, up until the last 20, 30 years, that's been a very, very strong propensity of American life. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about it in the early 19th century, that Americans seem to belong to a tremendous amount of organizations and associations, and certainly in the post-war period, where you came of age, one of the ways that, American, that Americans, not just American Jews, understood themselves was through the organizations with, 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 which they, where they belonged. The Elks, the Rotary, the Bowling League. There's the, the quintessential book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. Americans are bowling just as much today as they were in the 50s. In the 50s, they bowled in leagues Um, because we understood ourselves as being part of membership organizations, and now Americans bowl alone. And so we we see where where that was, uh, uh, you know, a a non-negotiable, and how that that shift in American society is playing out in very, very significant ways in the Jewish society, whereas Rabbi Bernstein was talking about that, you know, the grappling, the wrestling with the Holocaust. Now there's been a serious Americanization of the Holocaust and Americans of all faith traditions um, know a tremendous amount about what happened to the European Jewish community. It is, I live in Philadelphia, when I'm there, uh, which is about half of every month. And it is very striking that the National Museum of American Jewish History is on the mall in Philadelphia, and the Jewish institution on the mall in Washington is actually, it's the Holocaust Museum, it's a very, very, very important memorial. And it is a little bit out of place, I think, that the representation of Judaism on, on our nation's capital is about the destruction of the European Jewish community and, and how much that, uh, that wrestling preoccupied. I mean, I was nodding behind you because I'm two years younger, and I too, um, the, 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 the fixation on the Holocaust, as, as that came to the fore and as we began to wrestle with trauma. Um, at, and so and then tracing forward into this moment of of, of post ethnicity, I think it is really um, I, I want to just close with two comments. I think that when we think about doing Jewish um, what we need to be that it is not only about self driven self chosen activities that we communal leaders, we who come together. We need to put forward a vision of a substantive Jewish life that is sufficiently engaging to our children, to the next metaphorical or real, that when they are are exposed to the the rich abundance of identities and experience that, that we have now in our society, that they will choose to be Jewish not, not because it was their, only their birthright or what they inherited or because someone told them, but because it's full of meaning and value and even demands. And then, so that is on us as, as, as communal leaders to create this rich and vibrant, uh, these rich and div- vibrant, diverse expressions of Jewish life. So that's, that is part, of, that's part of it. And I think one of the things I want to suggest is as Rabbi Renner talked very powerfully about the boundary maintenance and in and out is that I I am not so certain that the boundary metaphor the boundary language serves us well at this moment uh because because, because it means uh that we that 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 uh that we have a lot of policing going on. And because it means, we live in a time of contested authority. There is no one, you know, if, you, if you're a, if you're a, a Lubavitcher Hasid, if you're, you're Chabad, you can say, okay, the Rebbe, now that the Rebbe's dead, the Rebbe's interpreters, they're authoritative. But we liberal Jews we don't. Yeah, he's coming back, maybe. Never We're waiting. To We're waiting. Uh, but we don't have any one authority, <clears throat> which means that anyone will will choose to police those boundaries. Sometimes I, I hear these very, very painful, you know, the, the story of the, the the reform the reform rab, uh, rabbi or the congregation that says, "No, there is no place for you." And the the language, the metaphor, and I I take this from my colleague Rabbi Maurice Harris. The metaphor that I've been working with and uh, trying to think about what comes beyond boundaries is of a spiral galaxy of those beautiful images that we see from space um, of, of those galaxies that are they have they're intact. They have an integrity to them, but they are they are constantly in motion. Uh, they are constantly moving with an open endedness. Um, toward uh you know to- toward their own their own future and that to think rather than whether it's the square or the circle or the triangle that there is both the openness and that integrity um and that it's constantly it's iterative it's constantly looping in and on in conversation in investigation uh in uh in moral inquiry that that seems to me the the kind of imagery that may be best suited to this time of incredible fluidity.
1: We have Millie uh, pick, pick it up? Want a mic? Oh, yeah. Give her the mic, yeah. Yes.
4: Because I she has some questions. <laughs> <coughs> um, I don't know if I should stand here for a yeah, second. Sure. So I will open it up for a few questions from our audience. Thanks for being here. And this has been really interesting and eye-opening, and I'm thrilled that Deborah Waxman here. But I have a question. Um, We've been touching on it a little bit. So what happens when Jewish identity becomes merely cultural? And what will happen to the preservation of Jewish education and our traditions if it's merely being a cultural Jew?
0: Someone asked me this recently, and I got into an argument that I didn't even intend to get into and (laughs) wasn't even sure I was wedded to my position (laughs) once. Um, But... It was exactly that question. You know, like the only thing you know, that's really keeping Jews together is like bar and bat mitzvah ceremonies and you know, the stuff that's really about religion. And if it just becomes cultural, then it all is going to go away. And I said, "What makes you think the bar and bat mitzvah experience is a religious experience? It is 100% cultural." I said, "Because these people don't go to shul." They don't pray in their homes. They don't come on Friday night. They don't come on Saturday morning. They want these kids to learn these prayers for this moment of a cultural coming-of-age ceremony that is completely about identifying with a rite of passage of the Jewish people. It is not because they believe in God. Right? These kids all tell me, I'm doing this even though I don't believe in God, Rabbi. Oh, no. Shocking. Right? So, like... So on the one hand, I think that's true. I think we have to be really good at doing what Rabbi Waxman said, which is creating a vibrant, exciting, meaning-filled Jewish experience that is about Jewish spirituality, about moral and ethical imperatives that come to us through our sacred literature, which for us is Torah, which is connected to religious expression. And I think there's a lot of what Jews are doing that is culturally um, compelling this is what brings them to the synagogue. They, I think people bring their kids to the religious school not out of a religious imperative, out of a cultural imperative. They want us to have them feel Jewish. And the only way they'll get a Jewish identity is coming here one day a week for two hours. It certainly ain't to download the tradition, right, in two hours a week. We can barely teach them to read Hebrew in two hours a week. So I, I don't buy, I, don't, I think I still am where I was when I started that argument. I don't think I buy that the shift to cultural means we lose a commitment to our religious institutions. I think it's the opposite. I think Jews still want somehow to have a Jewish identity, to be connected to the Jewish peoplehood rites of passage and want that for their kids. And they just don't know what that means in terms of their religious identity because we've not been very good at talking about what that is. Talking about what do we mean when when my daughter told me Um, because she had her about missile last weekend, um, and she told me, you know, you know I don't believe in God. Like, I'm doing this, but I do not believe in God, and you know that, right? And I'm like, you have no idea what I mean when I say God. So I would find it fascinating, Eliana Faye, to know what it is that you don't believe in that you think I mean when I say God. (laughs) Right? Because we don't have that conversation. I think that's where we're falling short, and we need to be really, really creative and committed to making that a vibrant and meaning-filled language and set of experiences for our kids.
1: I think that um, we in the Reconstructionist world are constantly saying things like what gives Jews their identity is not belief but rather belonging. We are constantly saying things about what connects us What gives us our identity is that sense of belonging to something greater than ourselves, feeling like we're a part of the Jewish community linked to thousands of years of Jewish history and culture and language and literature, that Judaism is a civilization with language, literature, art, history, culture, food, music, and all the things that a civilization embraces. It's not a religion in the narrow sense of a system of belief, that you believe this, you're Jewish. If you don't, you're not, like some religions in the world, that that's the standard. You say, yes, if you can say, I believe, then you're in. If you can't say, I believe, you're out. We always say, that's not what we're about (coughs) at all. We're about what some people call cultural is all of that richness of Jewish civilization. That's why people do all of the things that Rabbi Bernstein mentioned and everything else. Why do you have a Passover Seder? or Why do you light candles on Hanukkah? Or whatever it is that you choose to do and the the reality of the world as I see it, is that everybody in this world in which we live in the 21st century creates their own unique religious lifestyle they're creating it with their spouse, with their partner, with their families they're picking and choosing from the thousands of years of Jewish stuff and all that is Jewish that makes sense to them that our challenge really is the Jewish institution of, of that's Represents the foundation of Jewish life, which is what synagogues do, is to teach our children and adults in such a way that they feel empowered to keep playing with all the things that are Jewish that are out there. To see all those thousands of years of Jewish literature and culture and ritual and languages and everything else as belonging to them. To me, that's the challenge. To say, when you're Jewish by birth or Jewish by choice, it's like, it's always the metaphor in my head. You get a key. This key is to your Jewish inheritance room. You own this key because when you open the door and look in the room, everything that's ever been Jewish for the last three or four or 5,000 years, depending upon who's counting, belongs to you. That's your inheritance. And the challenge is for the rest of your life to go in and try things out and try this on, oh, what's this? Oh, it's a kippa. I'll put it on, see how I feel when I want to wear it, if I want to wear it it's mine whether I wear it or whether I don't wear it all the things I understand, all the things I don't understand to me, that would be the ideal Jewish education, it would be for kids to walk away feeling, oh, this, is, this all belongs to me and my whole, I have a whole life to try this and to try that and then to keep the things that enrich my life make my life that much more meaningful Jewishly because it's a part of the reflection of the identity of who I am the religious part quote we live in a world in which spirituality and spiritual seekers are everywhere whether it's yoga retreats or whether it's whatever the thing is that people are seeking to have a sense of transcendent experience, that's our challenge our challenge is we know that the Bar and Bat Mitzvah isn't necessarily that, it might be to some people there are moments in that experience when it is that there are moments that are transcendent there are moments that are religious in that sense for me um, and part of our challenge is to have more and more of those moments that people can anchor their Jewishness around. Nick, did you
4: want to say? Rabbi
3: Runner? I, um, I would have very little to improve upon what Rabbi Rubin said. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> answer. So, um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> the only thing I would <coughs> toss into the mix um, of all of, this, uh, all of these great ideas My experience from Hillel and in working with our teenagers in particular tells me that a big piece of what people are seeking is not cultural or religious or on this axis necessarily but they're looking for a certain kind of Jewish authenticity an authenticity of Jewish experience of connection of the way these things speak to their souls that isn't uh, that isn't perceived to be what someone, some authority figure or someone in a different generation tells them they should relate to in way x y or z or whatever but um, giving them that key that Rabbi Rubin spoke about and opening that door for them and saying what is authentic in here to you? what authentically speaks to you? what um, is part of what resonates authentically with your experience? Uh, because my sense, at least from the journeys of a lot of the young people that I've gotten to be part of, is that there are so many different pieces, I don't know, in this mass of communication and apps and pictures and phones and all of these different things there are about a thousand different things all coming at them in any given moment, but to have something that really moves your soul on a different level in terms of what it is—what is authenticity in terms of experience and connection with other people—that strikes me as a really interesting question. Um, and so, that's the only other word I would toss into it is authenticity. Beautiful.
4: Uh, I'd like to give someone a chance to ask a question. I knew you would. Do you need the mic?
5: No. Yeah,
4: no. give me the mic. So everyone can hear you.
5: It's better if no one hears me. Uh, you know, the focus of your conversation tonight has been about the children. Focus tonight has been about the children. I'm kind of more interested in older adults, and I'm wondering. Um, so, ritual matters, and uh, you know, what, like the relationship between prayer, and ritual, and spirituality. And how that fits into the narrative that the four of you shared. Because I totally agree that there's a room that needs a key. And maybe when you get older, you decide to open the door and see what's in there. Um, So anyway, that's I'm just shifting the focus to, say, people my age and give or take two generations. (laughs) <laughs> that's because I'm a hundred.
0: Um, I think it's hopefully one of the fastest growing segments of active Jewish communal life are uh, adults uh, whose lives are no longer focused around child rearing. Um, and I think it's one of the most exciting things uh, that's happened is the graying of the Jewish community. Uh, over 50% of the Jewish community is now 50 or older, uh, and that number is increasing rapidly. So um, I think it's actually a very exciting time. We talked about it in Wise Aging, uh, which you you were part of, Mark, um, that, um, that this group of people who have now the time, and because they are older, the maturity, the ability to reflect deeply, and and a longing to figure out where I can connect deeply, is a very exciting thing for the synagogue, and for Jewish communities that are not necessarily synagogues. Um, And I think our responsibility is to make sure that we are doing all that we can to tap the creativity, you know, the energy, the thoughts, the participation um, uh, of that group, and to figure out what we have from. You know, we're pretty familiar with a lot of what's in that room, um, what we can bring out, right? And say, look, did you know this is actually in the room? This is actually Jewish, <laughs> right? And whether it's meditation or whether it's, you know, um, you know, different experiments with um, different modalities of prayer, including physical expression of right movement and Um, walking, meditation, all those things that are very Jewish, but they they fell out of parlance when we went to the Age of Reason, capital R, right? And this move towards rationality, a lot of those fell away. And so to bring those, to have people who are interested in bringing those back and reconstructing them is a very exciting thing for those of us who are deeply attached to the spiritual expression of the Jewish people um, that we don't see. Um, I was not, when I said I think people bringing their kids here for bar mitzvah and for Jewish education is really cultural. I was not saying that with any sense of glee, right? Like I'm concerned about um, Jewish engagement in spiritual matters and the life of the spirit. On
4: this side of the room, any questions?
6: side. second. I'm curious what brought each of you to uh, decide to be Reconstructionist rabbis as opposed to Reform or Conservative? And also, could you define for me and for us how you see Reconstructionism, how it is similar or different than Reform or <coughs> Conservative?
1: we said no, would that be all right? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: thought we hate that question. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, where do you want to start? I
5: don't
1: have a mic. You know what? Give have a mic for a minute
6: because th- sir. Uh, I'll
1: just say the, the quick version of how I ended up here. I got a job. Um, <laughs> That's the short version. Um, but I was raised, although in a Reformed congregation, with parents who identified intellectually as Reconstructionists, subscribed to what was at the time the Reconstructionist magazine. We've used the Reconstructionist Haggadah for Passover my whole life to this very day, the same one from 1948. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and I had the privilege of studying with... Uh, Mordecai Kaplan when I was in Jerusalem my first year of rabbinic school. Um, terrifying though it was. And um, so I always uh, saw a reconstructionist thought uh, to me as sort of common sense Judaism, the most uh, sort of rational uh, and common sense approach to understanding God as a power that works through us and that we discover in the everyday miracles of life and things that to me just made sense so when I had the opportunity to come here, uh, knowing it was a Reconstructionist congregation and that by coming here I would be casting my lot with the Reconstructionist movement, I was thrilled at the opportunity and said yes.
0: Uh, for me, I was raised in a conservative day school. Uh, the, the everyone went to the Orthodox synagogue, um, and that's, all of that resonated with me deeply. Um, I loved... I loved being part of a prayer community. I loved um, Hebrew. I loved blessings before and after meals. I loved singing. I loved all of it. Uh, I loved Hebrew. I loved the depth of the language. I loved um, immersing myself in that um, ancient part of my brain self um, and that was all and I went to an Orthodox high school after day school uh, and when I came out at 16 had to leave uh, Yeshiva High School and had to leave the Jewish community at that point, Um, because the only Judaism I knew was that brand of Judaism that meant uh, I was not accepted as a lesbian. Um, All that had been said to me about what matters is how you live your life and how you treat other people and what your values and ethics are and your neshama, your soul is what matters. None of that was true anymore because of who I loved. That betrayal was so hurtful that I had to leave the whole business altogether. Went to a performing arts high school, became a singer-dancer, and that was my identity for a long time. uh, Until I graduated college at Northwestern, I continued to flirt with different kinds of Judaism, and I I could not deal with reform that felt like church to me. It was all English. Nobody wanted to be there anyway. Their parents made them go, um, and it was boring and dry, and um, so I would go to Chabad services that were free and I could sit on my side of the Mechitza and cry my way through the services and nobody cared because everybody was crying there was a depth of feeling at the high holidays that people wept and were unashamed about it so I could cry It wasn't. I mean it was both because of what I had always grown up seeing, a chazan crying and my feeling moved to tears sometimes for all the bad I'd done and wanting to be a better person, all the longing for that and the music and the pull of it and the ancientness of it and the longing, And um, so I, it, there was all that, but I was also crying because I missed it and hated it at the same time um, and felt such a deep, serious conflict that I just was like, OK, I'm done. I've done Yom, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and I'm not touching this and I'm not coming back next year either. And every year there I'd be on my side of the Mechitza um, until I graduated and went back to Atlanta um, and I express this misery freely to anybody who would listen. Um, around, <laughs> that's shocking to I, you know, hear. Right? Totally. I know, right? Totally blows me away. I know, I've changed so much. So much. Um, and so, around the high holidays, it was just like oozing out of me everywhere. And finally, my partner, who was not Jewish, said to me, um, "There is a gay and lesbian synagogue, and I found their address. And if you don't go uh, for high holidays at some point, then you can no longer complain." And I was damned if I was going to give up complaining. <laughs> so I said, fine, I'll go to your stupid, stupid, stupidness of a stupid service. And then I don't want to talk about it again. And um went to... Uh Beit in Atlanta, Georgia, where the student rabbi was Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who was from a very traditional background in a burial shroud, a full talus, kippah. She clearly spoke Hebrew fluently. She, She had enough Yiddish in her language that I knew she grew up in a traditional home. She was an out lesbian. And I thought, how did she get there? from where I'm sitting. And
1: she was amazing.
0: And she is, <laughs> she is, she amazing. is amazing. She so, is a force of nature. She's amazing. Um, and <laughs> remains one of our greatest talents and leaders. Yeah. And she, fortunately, she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> yeah. And still can't. Uh, and so she, with a lid on it, so she um, asked, so she heard me do something because they, they invited all new people to do something at the service. She invited me to do Chati Kaddish, which is something that generally is chanted. So I went up and chanted it, and she was, she said... Don't move. Don't move. <laughs> Bubala, we need to talk. You'll stay after the service. She gave me a machzar. She said, I'm sending you tapes, and you will be the chazanit, you will be the cantor for Yom Kippur. And that's how i wound up better a reconstructionist because it for me answered all of the things i had so loved in my traditional upbringing um and and i grew up with a very liberal family it wasn't like i was immersed in traditional necessarily jewish you know ways of thinking about the world but i loved the rituals i loved the cadence i loved the language i loved the authenticity of a deeply serious judaism of practice and uh And so Reconstructionism gave me that, and I did not have to park my brain at the door to participate in it. I did not have to park my feminism, my lesbian identity at the door to be a part of it. I didn't have to park any of my liberal values at the door, and there was no longer a conflict for me between a lot of those things and what it meant to be fully immersed in an educated, serious Jewish experience. And that remains my experience of Reconstructionist Judaism
3: at its best. So, I went to <laughs> yeah. I went to a conservative synagogue with an Orthodox minion in the basement and the whole thing was run by a Reconstructionist-trained rabbi, <laughs> one of the earliest graduates of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Um, and partly because my family at home, my Jewish family, was Reform, we didn't do all the conservative stuff, but I still thought I was conservative because I went to a conservative school, I was part of that. I thought I was conservative, I was just crappy at it. it was sort of what we thought. Um, but later on, when I began thinking of becoming a rabbi and the reasons for which, you know, that's another story I'm happy to tell it another time, but I began looking at what school would make sense, and I realized that the issue of halakha and Jewish law and those pieces, that I, I wasn't going to have a relationship with that that was going to allow me to go to a conservative rabbinical school, that that wasn't going to be my expression of Judaism and my Jewish identity. And so I began looking elsewhere and I thought, well, my rabbi went to RRC, why don't I have a look at RRC? And that was really what clicked for me. It was a vision of where rabbi didn't serve as legal arbiter of the Jewish community, but rather the community lived with the rabbi and they learned together and prayed together and davened together and there was this beautiful synthesis and from that emerged a vision of what Judaism would look like in any given community. It wasn't about a central committee of law and standards that would dictate to you, this is the doctrine by which you're going to be Jewish, but it was about a relationship between rabbi and community from which this would organically grow. I thought, well, that's really cool. And then I saw the curriculum, and I saw this whole civilizational program, this idea of understanding Judaism as a function of the different civilizational moments of the Jewish people. That that was the place from which I drew permission to reconstruct Judaism, was understanding all of the history and the academic pieces, but then all of the rabbis and all of our internal discourse, and where those voices argued with one another, and where they were the same. Uh, sitting present with all of that, I think, was what made me a Reconstructionist. I went to the school because I liked the vision of what a rabbi was, and uh, I liked the curriculum. I figured I just wouldn't tell them that secretly I wasn't a Reconstructionist. Um, I figured we would just keep that quiet. But um, by the time I finished uh, at RRC, I think I was as deeply committed as any of the Reconstructionists there to the Reconstructionist. Uh, value that ethic, that sense of identity, of, of si- living in civilization, that perspective of what Judaism means and that place from which I derive permission to reconstruct Judaism anew in this generation. Um, so I feel very deeply intertwined with that project at this point.
2: You all see how lucky I am that I um, have colleagues like this and that this is, this is, um, this is the... The substance of the Reconstructionist movement, this kind of thoughtfulness. Um, I had never heard the, the term Reconstructionism until I was 21 years old. Uh, I grew up in a left wing conservative Judaism. I came of age just as uh, the conservative movement was starting to grapple with egalitarianism, and my congregation was at the forefront of it, and I didn't know that. Um, so I uh, they voted to, um, count women in the Minion just as I was approaching my bat mitzvah. And they, and I received the same training as the boys and in my, in my Hebrew school. And I had a full Saturday morning bat mitzvah where I did everything from beginning to end and read Torah and chanted the Haftarah. On a Saturday morning, and I didn't know at the time that I was only the second girl in the state of Connecticut to do that in the conservative movement. And the first was my friend Deborah, who did it two weeks earlier, and we had trained together. So um, I... I, my experience of Judaism, I grew up in a very ethnic, I grew up in Connecticut in a very ethnic Jewish, uh, town, and so the, 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 lots of Jews in the, on the street, and then we, we had a very active, we were very actively involved in our synagogue. I thought that was what conservative Judaism was, and, uh, when I went to college, I went to Columbia as an undergraduate. And uh, Columbia is in close proximity to the Jewish Theological Seminary, which at that point in time was the only seminary that ordained cons- conservative rabbis. And the experience there was far more strictly ideologically conservative. So even though they had started to uh, ordain, I started uh, college the year that, Rabbi Renner was born. And um, they had started to ordain women rabbis three years earlier, two years earlier. The, 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 uh, the synagogue at the seminary still didn't count women in the Midian even though that decision was 15 years old at that point. And that kind of dissonance felt mm-hmm. so problematic to me. It really kind of impelled me out of conservative Judaism. Uh, but I didn't know where to go, because for me, too, at that moment in time, the reformed Judaism really didn't speak to me. So I was in Israel. I was at the Hebrew University, and a friend of mine who grew up in Philadelphia, I, we, we were juniors. We were starting to think about what came after college, and I said, I, I, have thought about possibly being a rabbi. I didn't know any women rabbis. It's felt t- totally possible to me, even though I didn't really have any models. I said, but I don't think I could go to JTS. And he said, well, you sound like a reconstructionist. And I said, what's that? And he said, it, he, he said, well, uh, it, 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 you know, you've heard us. I think you've heard a pretty uh, powerful explication of what Reconstructionism is in our conversation tonight. But the way he said it was, well, it's about living in two civilizations. And so the Reconstructionists make up um, ceremonies for American holidays like Thanksgiving. And And I said, that sounds crazy. And I'm definitely not one of those which is quite ironic, given the fact that I'm the head of the movement now. Uh, but he, 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 he sparked my interest enough that when I came back from Israel, I bought Mordecai Kaplan's Judaism as a Civilization, which is not exactly a beginning primer. It's heavy read. devs. But it was. You know, I started to, to read and learn more. And I think actually what Nick just said, it was very much my experience, that um, I felt uh, uh, certain that... I felt very, very excited by the curriculum and by the people at RRC. I felt certain that I could – I didn't feel that I was a Reconstructionist per se, but that I could grow into the fullest – I could contribute everything I had to contribute. I I was a – I had been launched on a career uh, very successfully that I didn't choose um, at, when I was 24. And so it really, I didn't want to get locked into something for the rest of my life. And so I was really trying to choose uh, a work uh, of great meaning and, and opportunity to, uh, to be with people uh, in and, 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 and moments of, um, you know, when, when people really wanted to show up as their best selves. And, and so the rabbit really appealed to me. And I came to RSC because I thought that it would help me be the fullest expression of myself i I didn't quite know it at the time that that included coming out, um, that I came out my, my first year of rabbinical school, uh, and I feel so grateful at every point in the Reconstructionist movement that I have been celebrated and embraced in, in everything that I have to offer, that the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I'm a lesbian, did not the fact that my wife is a Jew by choice, that, that none of that was ever a barrier, that what I had to contribute, the Reconstructionist movement said, um, this is of value we, we, we want, um, this to, to, you know, we, we, we want, to, we want to, to, to take what you have to offer um, and to use it to build up the Jewish community. And to respond to the question of the dis- distinction between Reconstructionism, there are a lot of different ways to answer the question. So here's the way I'd like to ask you to think about it, because you've heard us talk a lot about it tonight. Think about Reconstructionism as an approach to being Jewish, um, as, an, as an approach to living Jewishly, and that approach is understanding the breadth of Jewish the Jewish civilization, that there are a lot of different ways to be Jewish, that there's a valuing of this kind of commitment, an understanding of change, of evolution, and that with that understanding um, comes an obligation to, to, to act, to, cha- to, to both cherish and change Judaism so that it retains its relevance. And I would say another element of the approach of Reconstructionism is a kind of optimism, a kind of intentional optimism, understanding that we can create the kind of community, the kind of Jewish life that we want, and that um, that's not a naive, and i been thinking a lot about it in, um, in the last month, it's not a naive optimism, it's kind of a, a willed optimism, it's kind of an intentionality. And so that's why you, Mordecai Kaplan himself thought that there could, he wanted it to be really understood as a school of thought more than a denomination. And that's why you can have something like what Rabbi Renner described, that a, 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 a conservative synagogue with an Orthodox minion led by a Reconstructionist rabbi. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think that there, that, that, that uh, that it is even, it, rather than strict ideological principles, more the application of this approach to the, the moment in which we're living. That is quite distinct from, uh, so that's the, that's the, that's the, the broadest brushstroke answer. It, that there's, there are clear distinctions from the conservative movement because the conservative movement Considers itself bound by halakha. And the Reconstructionist movement, for most of us, I would say we are in relationship to halakha. We study it, we, we refer to it, we're aware of it, but it doesn't, um, it's, not this, it's not the sole decisor. It was one of Kaplan's most famous lines halakha has a vote, but not a veto. The, I'm not going to go into it, but historically, the moment when Reconstructionism emerged, it was very, very, very different from classical Reform Judaism, um, and that and, that's, and Kaplan uh, felt a real need to uh, recapture, recover. Uh, retain the richness of Jewish tradition that Reform Judaism had really set aside. In the years since 1937, he published Judaism as a Civilization in 1934, and under the influence of Judaism as a Civilization, the reform movement adopted a different platform in 1937 that started to move, to return back toward a deeper embrace of Jewish traditions. And in those years, in those 80-some-odd years, the reform and the Reconstructionist movement have moved closer together um, in in both directions. The the biggest distinctions I would say now have to do with the reform movement profoundly understands um, that decisions are made by individuals. Individual autonomy is very, very important. And in the Reconstructionist movement, we spend a lot, there is a lot of individual autonomy for sure. We spend a lot of time talking about, Um, and trying to cultivate a sense of communitarianism alongside of it. That, you know, that, you know, our liturgy is all in the plural. We understand things in a collective way. So we, we want to make space for individual, for the individual, and we also want to be bolstering the community again and again at every, at every moment. There, there's, for sure there's elements of that in the, in the reform movement, but the decision comes down to individual autonomy. There are distinctions in in, in theology, there are distinctions in aesthetics, um, but, but the, that, that, I think that it's probably that's the one that's worth um, uh, spelling out
0: the, the perfect example for me was when I was um, at, at Dulee's and we were affiliated Reform they then became Reform Reconstructionists but the, I went to the so I was always going to the Reform Conventions and these were you know for Reform Jews who were very involved and there was a, a buffet lunch put out and I'm going through the line and taking stuff and right, and then I, I'm taking um, tuna and cottage cheese and cheese and whatever I'm putting it on my thing and, and I get to the next platter and it's a platter of deli meat Right? And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Right? Because I was used to, in a Jewish context, whether you personally keep kosher or not, there wasn't a... You didn't have to think about, at a Jewish gathering, wait a minute, do I want to have cheese today or meat? Right? It, w- it was just an example of... That because you know, when I asked the person leading it, like, w- can you explain that choice to me? I'm very interested in the choice to put out deli meat and all of this dairy at... Uh, uh, a lunch where there's a huge amount of rabbis in attendance and she said she looked at me like I had three heads like she didn't really understand the question and she's very thoughtful and very smart and and she said well because we trust everybody can make their own choices about kashrut right like it was so obvious to her that that the authorities were the individual. So wh- why would we only put out one thing on the table, whereas I was coming from completely the other side, which is, but it's a Jewish gathering. This is the one place I don't have to think about, right? A Jewish norm around eating, because that's our communal commitment, at least on some level. So, I mean, that's just one minor example of how it plays out in terms of autonomy versus um, authority, really, not, ju- not just authority, but you know, th- things lying with, with the community. So
4: I think we have time for one more question, and just to be respectful of people's time.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. So, uh, so I wanted
7: to, uh, uh, just thinking about what you okay. all have said and, and, and reflecting on what that means to my sons who were, our sons who were in, in, here at KI, and, and the conflict that now they, they are grappling with. The older one says, uh, as Robert Bernstein has, has observed, Gosh, Dad, uh, I don't believe in God, so I'm not sure. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm, I'm Jewish. And I said, Well, uh, listen, buddy, uh, it's a little too late for that. Uh, we've got you culturally, and and you're a Jew. And uh, so he he has his bar mitzvah, and uh, several years later, he's attended his second Jewish summer camp. It must have been a conservative-oriented one. And he comes back and goes, wow, I was really troubled because uh, I just don't believe in this uh, chosenness business. And I go, well, where did you hear that? And I realize it, it came from, from the camp. It
6: was Hess Kramer.
7: It was Hess it was Kramer. It was, it was reform. Okay. And, and then the, the younger son. You can't trust those reformed Jews. Yeah. You know, can't the,
6: trust the father to know
7: <laughs> So the, 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 the younger son uh, uh, loved the religious school here and, and went through confirmation. Um, in BBYO, he he comes back and he goes. Well, you know, uh, we're not really Jewish. Uh, boy, I, I'm attending those the, the uh, those religious uh, 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 get-togethers, whatever, whatever we call them, on, on a national basis with uh, the other people involved in BBYO. And uh, wow, they're Jewish and we're not. Um, he is is, uh, and I think a common thing we've never really discussed with with, with him so much. But it's this question that, that you have put on Rabbi Marcine, the belief in, in God and and the idea of post Holocaust, do we how do we grapple with God? Do we believe in this benevolent being? Um, uh, what is God? And so how do we engage our the next generation, recognizing that that's a conflict for them?
0: It's a huge, huge, huge question. Um, part of the challenge for us is when we have them. Um, I feel like when we have them is is pre-bar mitzvah, right? That's when we really have them and the families are committed to getting them here because you're going to get through that bar mitzvah and they have something you need to do that. And at that point, developmentally and in other ways, they're not really at a place to be caring about exploring God, right? And, And what that word means or what that term means. And so then what happens is they often leave Jewish institutions with a pediatric understanding at best of what that is you know or what it's about um because it's been so skills you know focused and um and i think the real challenge we have is how to talk with young people at their level which is very hard i'm not saying it's easy it's very hard they're at a very concrete stage i believe in god i don't believe in god right they're they're, that's their developmental appropriate place to be is in a very concrete Stage And um, the trick is how do we engage them then, but hold them past that to where they are ready to have more nuanced conversations. Um, We're not Jewish. I would love to know what that means to your children. We are not Jewish. What does that mean? I think this comes down to some of the covenant of being versus the covenant of doing. I say to my kid, you don't have a choice. You're Jewish. Because the Jewish people claim you. That's it. You're ours. Sorry. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, will they understand themselves as Jewish? This is where I'm deeply concerned about moving to a Judaism of doing. Right? Means if I, don't, if I don't like what they're doing, if that doesn't speak to me, if that's not compelling to me, I'm not Jewish. Right? If I don't like the concepts they're organized around, then I'm not Jewish. It's, I think it's of deep concern for us to figure out how to speak to a Judaism of doing. Because that's where they're at um, now. And that's the reality now. Um, And way smarter people than me, thank God, um, are thinking about it. And we're starting to talk about it. But I think we need to be worrying about it way more. That means, I think, giving more resources to our Jewish Experience Center. Um, We need to be way more creative about engaging uh, young people, pre and post Bar Mitzvah. And it needs to move up the chain. Um, And you have a mark saying enough. You know, with the kids already, what about... Uh, right? So there's all these competing needs, right, um, in the synagogue and in organized Jewish life, but I think we've got to kick the, the, those needs up to the top, further up the food chain uh, here at, and in other places um, before we're going to have any real answers to, to how to deal with exactly the, the question you're raising.
1: I have a quick response. What, one of the most traumatic experiences of my rabbinate was um, when one of our uh, kids, K.I., as a teenager, went to Israel and was um, enthusiastic, one of our enthusiastic kids, enthusiastic enough that he went to Israel, uh, was approaching the the wall, the Western Wall, and um, as if any of you have been there, you know, there's all kinds of Hasidim running around with tefillin going, you know, starting grabbing people, well men, grabbing boys and men and starting to wrap them with tefillin and uh, grab this kid and started putting tefillin on him and while they're doing that they talked to them and he said, you're Jewish? And he said, yeah. And he said, is your mother Jewish? And he said, no. And he went, "Well, oh, well then you're not Jewish. And unwrapped the, the tefillin and walked away and the kid was stunned and totally, to our fault, unprepared for having someone who looks so authentically Jewish tell him, period, you're not Jewish, because his mother happened to not be Jewish. We have a lot of people here whose mother's not Jewish, and who, as far as we're concerned, are thoroughly Jewish, and a part of the Jewish community. Uh, It it was one of the most disturbing experiences of my personal rabbinate, because I felt that I had let that young man down that I had not prepared him successfully to understand that there are people who have their own... There's a range of what people decide is authentic, real Judaism, and there are people who are going to say, if you're not Orthodox, you're not Jewish, if your mother isn't a Jew, you're not Jewish, if this, you're not Jewish, if that, you're not Jewish, if that, you're not a real Jew, you're not a real Jew, you're not a real Jew, and that one of our great challenges is we teach a love of Judaism in our own way, we teach basic Jewish life skills, we teach with as much ritual and joy as we can, and I don't think we still, to this day, uh, and part of it is the age-appropriateness issue of, you know, we say things and it goes right over their head, and they don't hear it in the way we think we're saying it anyway, uh, that we don't adequately prepare kids to recognize that there's a dozen different authentic Judaisms, Just more than that, but and ours is one of them, and here's another one of them, and here's another one of them, and here's another one of them, and yes, you're going to run into people, and at a BBYO national convention, who knows who that you know your kid engaged with, where they came from, so that they would say, oh well, your version isn't a real Judaism. You know, that doesn't really count because my version is the real Jew. Whatever my version is, conservative or this or that or whatever.
0: But I heard him saying his kids are saying, yeah. I'm not Jewish, right? Is that what I heard you say? They say they're not Jewish.
1: It's because he went to a national convention. Right. who're going to say you're not real, a real Jew? Ah. Right. Or that somehow I'm going to think more tradition is more authentic, more this, because I, I grew up that way. I mean, I know, because I didn't grow up the way that Rabbi Bernstein did. I grew up in a Reformed congregation where I had very little Hebrew, where they didn't wear kippah in my congregation. Where The first time I started wearing kippah was when I went to Israel the first time, my junior year of college, and suddenly realized, if you walk into a synagogue or something that might become a synagogue, or once was a synagogue, if you're a boy, you've got to wear a kippah. And I started you know, wearing a kippah for that. So I felt Jewishly inadequate much of my life growing up once I started having people who were much more traditionally grounded telling me, well, you're not really Jewish because you, you don't know this, you don't know this, you don't know this, you don't know that. It's not how you grew up. That's part of our challenge in liberal all of the liberal Jewish
2: right.
1: ways of teaching, you know. And right. yeah, we don't do a good enough job. I frankly. think
2: but I think the authenticity is the absolute is the critical piece that we that, that, that I deeply believe that the liberal Jewish community—I'm and I'm talking about conservative, reform, reconstructionist here—and you know, and beyond—that uh, we have the, we have the vision, we have the resources, we have the capacity to. To to grow up uh, a a non-Orthodox, I shouldn't say a, non-Orthodox expressions of Judaism that is deeply compelling, deeply authentic, and that that we have to, that's the work we have to do so that, uh you know the same way i you know we that 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 rabbi Rubin and i grew up just knowing we were jewish like that 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 that, 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 that their children they, that they feel it in their bones and that that they're not, they're not shaken when others try to contest it and
0: that's that's the big challenge that we have yeah. and for adults too
2: yeah right? for, for sure for, for
0: sure for adults yeah. as well how, how and how do we make a judaism and its expression compelling right. for people to leave their sofas and their televisions and come and do that with other jews that's right
1: I mean, this is authentic Judaism. This is right. exactly what we, right. we, we teach because we believe. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what Judaism has always been. It's not that Mordecai Kabbalah invented something. He just identified, oh, guess what? Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. That's what it's always been. The fact that some people froze it at a particular moment and said, no, this is the only way, this is the only one right way. Right. You know, that's what every fundamentalist version of every religion says. No, 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 this is the only one right way. And we believe that's not the reality. This is the only one right way, which is how, as you continue to be a part of the ongoing evolution of Jewish life and express it however you choose to express it, hopefully grounded in, you know, all that tradition has to offer.
5: The Orthodox has changed over the years. Mm. Yeah, Everybody changes. Right.
0: Mm. Everything's changed. Yeah. Of course, you change.
5: going to the village green and seeing a menorah.
0: Everybody picks. And, well, and that, that's one of the things we like to say, is that this is, we, we believe this is what has happened to Judaism writ large. We're just honest about it. Right. Right? Like, a microwave oven, how do you kosher it? Really? Like, that was really the intent of any part of halacha ever? Right. Right? Like we say, like, we're just honest about it, but it happens within every part of Judaism. Or we would have ossified and died a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. <laughs>
1: Sure. Wait, wait, wait. Do, do it into the mic so people can hear you.
6: I just wanted to give a brief alternate perspective that's authentic to our family because our son was raised in this temple. And when he was about eight years old, we had an opportunity to go to a Chabad temple from relatives visiting in Israel. And there was this big wall, and there was this small little hole in the wall. And he, Jordan was sitting with Tom, and he I think it just disconcerted him because he was so used to KI, and all of a sudden I heard him saying, Mommy, Mommy, where are you? Because he thought it was weird that we didn't sit together as a family. He also went to college and tried to go to services at college, and he found that conservative service was very stodgy and sexist and he didn't like it, it was too rigid and the reform, he thought they did nothing but gossip, they didn't really pray. And he actually, he thought KI was like, Cool. <laughs> so that's my honest perspective.
3: Uh, <laughs> I,
4: I know we're um, probably running out of time. And that's a, it's actually a good thing that so many people have questions because it means we will continue the time. conversation <laughs> later and that we have a lot to think about and a lot to share. But I know Didi Carrubin, did you have a question, Didi? Okay she let it be known she wants to say share
8: why don't I sing okay Um, first of all this is really isn't it's not a question I just wanted to tag on to your story about the young man who was told that his mother well when he said his mother wasn't Jewish and they said you're not Jewish the end of that story is that he was on the way to the wall because he had written a prayer on a piece of paper, folded it up, and he wanted to put it in the wall. Mm. And after this happened, as he was on his way to the wall, told he wasn't Jewish, he was so disillusioned and disheartened and broken, and he turned around to leave, and he took the prayer, and he put it in his mouth, and he swallowed it. And I thought that was always such a heart-wrenching part of that story because it really did let him down and the family as well the other thing i wanted to address by the way
1: the only good news about that was he came back and told me about it we came back and had a conversation about it he came back because he was this was a safe place for him to come and go what the hell happened you know
8: so that we can move on from there as well and And the other one thing is the other one thing, that was the first one thing. This is the other one thing. I wanted to talk about, you were talking about, you know, the difference between the movements and what is Reconstructionism. And I said that to Stephen, too. I mean, when we were first coming to the synagogue here, I said, what is that? And um, I didn't know what a Rebitson was either when, when we had... You know. <laughs> first gotten married i thought it was something a hunter shoots in the woods and cooks over a campfire but anyway Stephen, would you please whenever i'm trying to describe god according to reconstructionism the way you described it to me that really made me feel like i really got it was the story of the prisoners in the holocaust and one is very ill very they're all very thin they've hardly eaten anything. They've been given a crust of bread and a little water and the Jew that's on the top bunk is, um, you know, starving and now he's sick. And they come around and they bring the crust of bread in the water and his buddy on the bottom bunk takes his crust of bread and his little bit of water and he passes it to the gentleman up above that's ill. And S- Stephen told me that story because he was showing me that that in that motion of him giving the bread and the water yeah. is the presence of God. That in that movement and in that motion and in that moment is that's where God is and that's what God is. The way he saw it and now the way I see it, he said, when you look at your daughter when she's sleeping in her bed. And you get a feeling that you really can't put into words, but it fills you up. That's God. That's the presence of God in those feelings that you can't put words to. And so I I asked you to tell the story, and then I told it, and that's all.
4: (laughs) So thank you so much for coming tonight, and we will do this again, and... Thank you for sharing.